This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Rebecca Detterding, President and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Omaha. What I hope is, you know, the history that I am part of is that not just because I was the first female CEO, but because I was a great CEO. You know, I hope that's my impact and that's my legacy, and and the female is just another point in the story, but that the impact and the leadership that I'm able to provide, hopefully over a long period of time, is what the end story ends up being. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Rebecca Detterding is the president and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Omaha, an organization she had served as CFO since 2015 prior to stepping into the CEO role in March. She is the first woman to lead the organization in its 155-year history. Originally from North Platte, Detterding earned her undergraduate degree in business administration and accounting from the University of Nebraska at Kearney her MBA from Bellevue University, and she holds a CPA certificate. Rebecca Dedeting, welcome to Lives. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. We were just chatting about how wonderful it is that an organization is so well-known that not only is it moved to an acronym that's well-known, but even just down to a single letter. So YMCA, well-known as the Y. I wonder if, before we get too deep into our conversation, you might provide just a little historical context to the organization. Yeah, absolutely. The YMCA was founded originally in 1811 in London, um, and it was really founded as an organization to help workers in the Industrial Revolution to keep them off the streets, to keep them doing, you know, engaged in safe activities, to engage with each other, to build, you know, a collaboration with like-minded individuals around them. In Omaha here, we were founded in 1866. Uh, similar principles by a Union Pacific employee who, again, wanted to keep the workers who were working on the Transcontinental Railroad um, engaging in, in healthy activities. And, you know, the organization evolved over the years to really create a strong community. That is that is our goal. That is the basis of our, of our foundation. We do that work through three pillars, um, which are healthy living, youth development, and social responsibility. You know, our work is carried out across the Omaha Metro through our 12 branch locations, uh, through our five early learning centers and our three after school sites. But really, we engage in work, you know, outside of the walls of the Y as well. And, you know, just want to create that that community where people want to live, work and play and have those connections to each other and really engage in healthy behaviors and developing their well-being and helping, you know, create social situations where they can get out of isolation. I think we were hit extremely hard, all of us, through the pandemic, not just our physical health, but our mental health as well. And so we're an organization that's able to pivot to the needs of the community at that time. And I think that's what makes us really unique. I think I may be carrying some misperceptions or, dare I say, some ignorance about 
the global organization that is the YMCA. And so it sounds as if there is obviously a connection to a national organization, a global organization, but is the Greater Omaha YMCA, it, it, it's its own entity. It's not, if we were thinking in corporate terms, like a franchise. So, so I just wonder if, if you could just help me understand, you know, what, what are those relationships? Sure. We are a federated organization. And so we are an independent 501c3 here in the, as the YMCA of Greater Omaha. But we do have an affiliation to the national organization, our YMCA of the USA, and we even have an international organization as well. So there are membership standards that we uphold um, to be able to carry out, you know, using the Y branding, using the Y, you know, charter that we have, and we have to uphold those standards for them as well. But it's a great connection because we do have this national support organization, this resource. We have Ys across our states and across our, you know, region that we can connect with. We can connect leaders. We can learn what they're doing in their communities to serve. Um, so it's really just this wealth of, of knowledge and resources that we're able to tap into and, and get that support that we need to do a better job here in Omaha. So uh, YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. So some interesting elements to that. Association is a great word, but I'm thinking about young, Christian, and men. And that isn't necessarily how it is today. So clearly there's been a journey you know, our organization, as you mentioned, was founded as the Young Men's Christian Association. And I point that out a lot when I speak to people is we don't just serve the young anymore. We don't just serve men and we don't just serve Christians. Um, and that's a really important transition that we've made through a long period of history. We've made a lot of progress becoming a multicultural and anti-racist organization. That's actually our national organization, one of their strategic goals is to make progress to being a place for all. Um, that's really important. And what we highlight is we are a place for all. It does not matter any way that you define yourself. We accept you. Um, we want to be there for you. We want to support you. We want to create a support network um, of those around you. And so that is one of our pillars that is extremely important to us as we've transitioned over the years. But you're right. We, we were founded in Christian, you know, practices and principles. And our mission statement is to put Christian principles into practice through activities that build the mind, spirit, and body for all. Um, and again, that for all is a very important part of that statement. I find that really compelling. You were very specific about your language. And it's one thing for an organization to say, we do not condone racism or we are an inclusive organization, it's quite another to actually say we are anti-racist, which is a much more proactive and in some circles a more contentious framing. And also you talked about uh, embracing those that wish to uh, engage with uh, why, whatever their sense of identity and self. And I, I think those are really powerful pillars. Has that um, produced opportunities and hope for you and for the organization and maybe some challenges? Absolutely. Um, I think there's an infinite amount of opportunities and hope that we have within our organization and with the work that we do. And I think even very sad, traumatic events that have happened over the last several years, um, you know, with the killing of George Floyd, um, you know, a local death here related to that as well is is if anything, really wanted to propel our work in this area as much as we can. 
Um, you know, another example, when we see school shootings that happen around the country, we think about those kids that are marginalized, that are sitting on the margin, that maybe need that support network. You know, we don't we don't know the reason all the time of why they chose those actions. But if if the why can be part of a network for them to, you know, create that inclusion, to create a sense of belonging that maybe they didn't have and would have made a different choice. Um, I think that's what propels our work every day. We, we see those kids and we try and create those opportunities for them. Challenges that we face are enormous as well. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. We're, we're by no means a perfect organization and we have a lot of learning and a lot of, you know, work to continue to do in this area to be better. I think also, you know, being in the Midwest, our national organization, you know, is very um, direct about how quickly they want to move and and how they want to embrace this change. And we're in a region that maybe isn't quite as accepting of some of the areas around, let's say, LGBTQ plus community work and things like that. So, you know, it's our job to balance um, making progress in that area and doing a better job and also serving the needs of our community that we're in as well. So you talk about serving the community. You have quite a large spread. You have a number of venues and a number of communities that make up this region, and that includes uh, serving from Glenwood, Iowa, to North Omaha, to Sarpy County, to Valley in Nebraska. So that's quite a diverse array of geographies and communities to what degree does that provide you with an ability to tailor what you do, um, to respond to specific neighborhoods and communities, and perhaps see some of these opportunities that you've been talking about? We are striving to continue to find a balance between you know, serving globally across the network and finding core programs and core mission work that we do and making sure that that's carried out in each and every location that we, that we serve. But we also really give autonomy and, um, you know, a lot of opportunity for each community to determine what services are needed in that area and give our leadership at those locations the opportunity to carry those out. So we may have, you know, an amazing pickleball league in Valley, Nebraska, because our active older adults in that community really wanted that. That's what they wanted to do. And then in, you know, our downtown location, we may have an amazing after school site because those are the services that are needed in that community as well. So we really are able to balance the global network and the global mission that we're trying to achieve, but also find those those independent opportunities to really serve uniquely in each area. You have co-locations for WISE with schools. And that, I think, is fairly unusual. And so I'm curious about the rationale for that and, and what you hope to achieve with that co-location model. It is a more unique model, I would say, across um, the nation. We There are a few examples where there are YMCAs with schools. I think we have one of the most innovative with our Westview YMCA location that's located with Westview High School, Omaha Public Schools, Westview High School at 156 in Ida. So in this situation, it's co-located with a high school. There's actually shared spaces as well. So there are areas of 
the Y and the school that we essentially create a schedule where at some points the school is using it for their programming and then at other points the YMCA is using it for their programming. It's never shared in the sense that we have members in with school students at the same time. Safety is critical and, and we're that's very top of mind at those locations. But the collaboration and the opportunities for efficiencies with facility usage um, the opportunities to be a continuum of care for those students, that faculty, and then the community overall is really critical as well. So I think we saw, you know, the benefits that outweighed the costs, which the costs are, you know, partners have to kind of put aside their normal operating procedures. They may have to put aside their egos in a sense to say, hey, we usually get that gym during this time, but we recognize that, you know, the other organization needs it during that time. So it creates a lot of, you know, opportunities to work through these partnership models. And ultimately, both organizations, in this case, it's Omaha Public Schools and the YMCA, our outcome is to create a better community that we serve. What are perhaps some of the more unusual programs or services that the YMCA locally provides? It's a great question. Um one location I would like to highlight that I think is unique is our Healthy Living Center, YMCA, in Council Bluffs, Iowa. So this is a location that um, previously was a independent nonprofit called The Center. They approached the YMCA back in 2018 timeframe, and essentially they had had a concern for their ability to continue as an organization, but they served a unique population in that they were a senior adult focused location. So they had, you know, a wellness center, they had a, a warm water therapy pool, which was helpful, but they also provided a lot of unique opportunities for social interactions for seniors. They had ballroom dance, they had bridge club, uh, knitting, yarn work, pottery. And so they were interested to see if the YMCA could help them essentially continue those services and become a YMCA. And so we worked through, you know, a long process to talk with their leadership and we were able to acquire um, that organization. It turned into the Healthy Living Center, the YMCA Healthy Living Center. But I think what their fear was initially was that we would turn it into a standard you know, quote unquote, YMCA, where there is a child watch and there's kids running around and there's, you know, typical swim lessons and those type of programs, youth sports. But what they really wanted was to keep their identity as, you know, an active older adult center. And so we were able to do that. We were able to, you know, maintain their um, identity and keep the programs and enhance them in a sense with why resources and why support and give them that network. You know, the network that I spoke about that the YMCA has on a national level, we were able to give this center that network within our region and our, you know, local level as well. There's so many amazing stories that come out of that center. Uh, one that I'll share with you is there, there's an individual who he goes every morning to the store and buys bags of bananas and brings them to the Healthy Living Center and hands out bananas to everyone every single morning. That is what he does. And it's just such a, it seems like such a small thing, but it's so priceless to be standing there when he walks in with his bananas and everyone knows him. And it's just such a joy to see the impact that come out of there. At the beginning of the pandemic, 
you were the chief financial officer and then August of 2021, you became the interim CEO and then earlier this year, were appointed the CEO proper. What was that journey like through the pandemic for the organization? It was extremely difficult for our organization as with others across the community. Um, we are a people serving business and you know, it was at a time when we couldn't serve people in the sense that we were used to. We couldn't have our doors open at all of our branch locations for several months um, because we wanted to keep people safe and that's what we needed to do. What we were able to do during that time was pivot to the needs of the community during that time. We were able to partner with Omaha Public Schools and distribute hundreds of thousands of pounds of fresh produce to the community during a time that people really needed that support and needed that, that extra help. We were able to continue to engage our members in our uh, virtual classes, in you know, well-being checks, making calls to make sure that they were okay. We were able to maintain our early learning centers at our CHI hospital locations, which were critical for those on the front line really serving during the pandemic. It was a difficult time. We had to learn to pivot really quickly, and I think for an organization that we weren't used to transitioning very quickly. We're large. I mean, I feel like we generally took a lot of time to to make changes, um, but we were able to make changes really quickly. But it was difficult because we did lose those in-person connections with people. You know, we moved to remote meetings. We moved to not seeing everybody every day and seeing those smiles and, and really feeling that warmth that we're used to feeling when we're when we're out serving in the community. Moving through 2020, um, we were able to, you know, open back up in June and July at all of our locations and it looked different. We had masks on, we had to do social distancing. We had to, you know, ensure the safety of all of our patrons that we served. Financially, it was a struggle. You know, a lot of people didn't want to go to the gym. Um, they could have been also struggling financially during that time, so they couldn't maintain their membership. Generally, our organization fared better than a lot of Ys across the country in terms of people maintaining their membership dues, fundraising efforts. Our community is so supportive from our philanthropists. I mean, it's just it's awe-inspiring to see what people were able to do during that time. But as we move through 2020 towards the end of the year, I mean, we were considering what additional changes were going to need to be made. Um, you know, staffing, staffing decisions, facility decisions, programs. Um, it was it was probably one of the darkest time in December of 2020 um, as we moved forward. And then we got an amazing email and phone call that we received a $10 million gift from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott. And it shifted our world <laughs> upside down in such a great way. Um, we were then able to really determine, you know, how we could make the biggest impact with those dollars and what we could do. And it it gave us the hope, I think, that we needed to continue as a, as a longstanding organization. I want to go back to your childhood. So you were born and raised in North Platte, which is a smallish town in the heart of Nebraska. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about your upbringing? Sure. Yes, I was 
raised in North Platte, smaller town, but not too small, you know, still uh, fairly sizable. I think some people would joke that we only had one stoplight. We didn't. We had many more stoplights than that. You know, I had a great, I had a great childhood growing up when I was younger. Uh, I was a bookworm, uh, you know, self-professed nerd, also fairly athletic. I loved softball. I was a cheerleader. I loved going to school. I, I just love that type of thing. I liked being around people. When I was uh, in my early teen years, you know, our family faced a tragedy. Uh, my dad at the time was diagnosed with melanoma skin cancer. Uh, I was about 13 years old, and we learned pretty quickly that it was it was terminal. And so he passed away my freshman year before high school. And so, you know, that really, I think, shifted ha- how I continued throughout life. Um, although I was always, I, I would say fairly studious and, you know, wanting, wanting to, to succeed, I think it really propelled me to grow up even quicker than I maybe had anticipated that I would. And and my childhood changed really quickly. Um, it was just my mom and I at the, at home at the time, I had an older sister who was 19, so she had already moved out and, you know, it just, it forced me to grow up and it forced me to um, take on challenges that maybe I, I wouldn't have been ready to take on had I not gone through that. And it took a long time to work through, you know, the emotions of, of that happening at an age where you're already, you know, undergoing a lot of, of change personally and, and socially as well. I don't think there's ever a good time to lose someone you love, especially not a parent when you're a teenager. Given your description of that period, I wonder if you can see there was a different you before age 13. And I'm not sure what you thought your future might look like. And, and, and frankly, when you're that young, who really knows anyway? But I wonder if you see a different you then. And then you mentioned that after that, you were forced not only to go through your teenage years developing as we all do, but your perception of life and what you could do and needed to do perhaps shifted quite markedly. And I'm just wondering if you do see that before and after. Yeah, I I think I do. Um, I think immediately after and for quite some time, as it took me, you know, a while to get through everything, I put up a lot of walls. You know, I think I was trying to protect myself from more heartache and more hurt. And I felt like if I put shields up and didn't let people in, then, then I couldn't lose them. Honestly, it took me decades to get through that, to realize that that was my mode of self-protection, that not letting people in um, was how I was coping, but it wasn't a healthy way to cope. And so I I have seen the shift and still a work in progress. I don't think I'm ever not going to be a work in progress, but still see the shift of, you know, that I can't protect myself. And if anything, I'm harming myself by not allowing those relationships to develop and not letting people in. So that's something that, that has really come out. I think in particular when, you know, after having kids and getting through the pandemic is just how key relationships are. And, you know, even if, if we lose a relationship or lose a person that, that we care about, the relationship is what mattered and being able to look back on that and not just not putting those walls up, really bringing those walls down and 
allowing yourself to be vulnerable is, is how I need to continue to move through life and what I, what I call myself to do every day. This may be unforgivable, but I'm going to ask about a stereotype to do with business and accounting, which is that it feels like a fairly steady and secure form of study and career. So that's the stereotype. And I could be woefully wrong, of course. And I'm curious about what it was that motivated you to study in that field of business and finance and accounting. And if there's something sort of intrinsically exciting about that for you, or what were the motivations that that was the academic path you followed and then the career path you began on? Sure. I, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think I I was always gravitated towards, you know, business and leadership and the finance side felt very steady, felt very secure, um, felt safe in, in a sense that, you know, there would always be opportunities to be able to, to serve in that regard. Um, I think I saw myself someday doing something different, leading in a different way, but it was also that that protection and that safety that I put around myself to say, well, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to, you know, put myself out there too much um, and do something that feels, you know, out of, out of that safety net. Um, but I really did and do still have a huge love of financial um, strategy and, you know, being able to, to look at operations of a business and how we can utilize resources and, how we obtain resources. One thing that I loved about being able to be in this role for the YMCA is my perspective was always about how we put the money towards the mission. And so it was never about, you know, the net of a program or, um, you know, reducing expenses because we wanted to get a, a better bottom line. The question was always towards, are we making the biggest impact? And how, how do we use our resources the best way to make the biggest impact for our, for our mission? And so to have that lens to be able to see it through, I think gave me that drive and that desire to, to continue to serve. I wonder if we might just explore a little about what it was like to be someone responsible for and leading an organization at the YMCA around the, the finances of the organization compared to your role now as CEO. And I'm just wondering if there are some distinctions there that are perhaps um, speak to your passions and your motivations and some skills and, and strengths that you have. Sure. Being in the finance role, there are more direct measurables. There are more direct impacts that you can pull from to say, look, I'm, I'm doing my job well. Here's what we were able to do. Um, you know, here's what, here's our return our in, on our investments that we were able to make, things like that. Um, in the CEO role, there's bigger impact, but it's more indirect. You know, I, I have a lot of responsibility for creating clarity around strategies and goals in our organization, for communicating those, um, for ensuring that we have strong leadership and strong culture. And these are all things that I prided myself in doing in the finance role, but maybe didn't have the you know broad impact that I now have in my CEO role. 
culture and people development has been hard, I think, of everything that I've wanted to do and have done. And so that's that's probably the synergy that's brought me from even the finance role to the CEO role is the people. Um, at the end of the day, we're all just people and and we're all, you know, trying to to move forward and move in a, in the same direction and to help each other. And if we can be, you know, strong leaders for the people that we lead and strong influencers for those that maybe we don't directly supervise, um, that's how we're really going to going to strengthen our impact the most. And, and that's kind of been what has driven me no matter what role that I've stepped into. What was going through your head when the opportunity to become CEO came up? So I love that you've talked about culture. I love that you've talked about people and developing people and how that seemed to speak to something within you. What were some of the things that you were thinking about? I think what initially went through my head was I would never have a chance. I mean, to be frank with you, of I don't know if I'm capable, um, probably just questioning my myself and, and my ability to lead. What encouraged me were the people that I served with and served alongside, you know, essentially asking me, are, are you? are you going to apply? You should, you know, and, and sometimes, and I don't know if this is just a female thing, but sometimes you need that external encouragement that maybe I didn't have that, that encouragement enough within myself, even though I had that belief that I could do it again, it's probably back to that safety net is don't put myself out there too much. So I don't get hurt, but having those leaders who I respected deeply encourage me and say, you could you could do this. People see you in this role. You you could do a great job, I think, is what influenced me to want to, you know, continue with the opportunity. And I think having that chance from the board to be the interim CEO during that time also um, was such a great experience and, and allowed me to experience what that would be like. Um, so I, I'm so appreciative of, of having a chance to be the interim CEO uh, had that not been the case, I don't. Things may have been different, but I think they also saw a different side of my leadership. You know, they were used to interacting with me based on financials and getting financial reports, and and maybe they saw a little bit more well-rounded leader than they had in the past. And so I think I think that encouragement um, just helped a lot. And I think I take that with me: is if there's anything that I can encourage others to do that's what we need to do. Uh, we, I need to continue to encourage others. And that's what drives my leadership because it may, that may be all it takes to really push someone into their next, their next role and their next, you know, journey of their life that may be drastically different than what they anticipated it being. So there's that element of questioning that goes into making a leap like the one that you did. What was the why? Like, why did you want the role? The why was the people, the people that first and foremost that are within our organization. Um, you know, I I had the chance to develop great relationships across the organization over the seven years that I served as CFO. And, you know, had I not stepped into the CEO role, this would have been the third CEO transition that I experienced had I stayed as CFO and so I also saw it as a commitment to those that I serve with that, you know, we needed 
we needed some longevity in the position. We needed, you know, someone that maybe saw things from a different perspective internal to the organization, but was willing, honestly, just to listen, to listen to what their ideas were, to what they wanted, to be able to encourage them and to give them opportunities that that maybe they didn't have in the past. And so that was my ultimate desire and my why of what what made me want to take on the position. And I think what what expanded from there was the opportunity just to make even a bigger impact in the community. So it started with internal within the organization, but then I saw uh what we're able to do if we can, you know, have a strong culture and have a strong leadership team and and create that clarity around what we need to do to make a difference. I like that you've talked about leadership in the sense of developing people, being willing to listen, the impact you can have within an organization and also within the community. So let me ask then how do you think about leadership? How, how do you define it? How do you go about being a leader? What, what is leadership to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think leadership to me is being authentic and it's finding, it's helping people find their purpose and helping them, helping, you know, not only find their purpose, but to achieve what, what they set out to achieve. It's really being there for them. I, I, Servant leadership is is kind of a term that comes to my mind a lot is I really do consider myself a servant leader. You know, yes, I'm here to oversee the organization and to help, you know, set a strategic plan and a vision and to help align our goals to those things and to work with our volunteer board of directors. But ultimately, if I can bring out, you know, the best in the people that I lead and and that I influence, that's what I would define as success as a leader. Um, again, I go back to being authentic and humble in in leadership and creating a culture that, you know, that's what is expected. You know, we need to be able to have honest conversations and need to be able to have great dialogue around ideas and to be open to to hearing different ideas. And I think sometimes in the non in in nonprofits that I've seen is maybe the culture, we can assume that the mission drives individuals, and it does to a point. But the culture also has to has to be there to support. The work is hard, you know. I mean, we our staff work so hard, and they are so dedicated to the people they serve. They deserve to have you know a strong leader that cares about them that is interested in developing the culture around them and creating a support network for them so they can do the work and continue to help our community as well. Culture, it doesn't tend to be something that a leader says it is. How do you go about, as we're not necessarily saying this is the culture, but creating, as it were, the circumstances so it can be the culture that you aspire for it to be? First, it starts with listening. Um, you know, asking questions about how people feel when they're at work, how they feel when they're, you know, in meetings with colleagues, how they feel their impact is made or, you know, when they haven't been listened to in the past. I think that says a lot about a, a culture of how if one, if people are willing to share how they feel and two, what they say about it and, and how we can impact that. It's I think it's also always ongoing. 
I don't think you can ever stop working on the culture of an organization. There always needs to be things that are happening. Where I started when I stepped into the, into the role was to create a strong leadership team. Um, and to, you know, we already had a strong leadership team. It was really bringing that team together to create standards of excellence for ourselves of how we show up and how we lead the organization. And, you know, I've heard that that's already making an impact. And, and I, I, you know, I feel it too when, you know, the leadership of an organization isn't as cohesive or clear on their direction as it, you know, permeates throughout the rest of the organization. I think it becomes a lot more evident. So it's our job to ensure that, that we're clear, that we're on the same page and it's a work in progress, but um, that's how I see it. It's, it's always progress. There's never an end point. You know, this shouldn't matter, but it feels like it is important, which is that you are the first female leader of the organization in its history locally. And I'm just wondering what that means to you. It's a little surreal to um, be a part of the history now of this organization in, in a sense that, you know, what I hope is, you know, the history that that I am part of is that not just because I was the first female CEO, but because I was a great CEO, you know, I hope that's my impact and that's my legacy and, and the female is just another point in the story, but that the impact and uh, the leadership that I'm able to provide, hopefully over a long period of time, is what the end story ends up being. But it's I'm extremely honored and, and honestly still still in shock that, <laughs> that I'm in this role. And um, yeah, it's just it's just crazy in, in some respect. It's, it's hard to believe. We're going to come back to the shock part in a second. <laughs> but um, so there's that sense of, for yourself, of, of your place in the history of the organization as a great CEO. Of course, you want that to be your legacy, but also as, as the first woman as leaders we just talked about. I'm wondering outside of yourself, what kind of resonance has it had? So, for example, representation can be important because it sends a message of intention. And I'm wondering how other people around you, perhaps whether they're colleagues, people you serve, or members of the community, how others have responded to this. Yeah, the response has been extremely positive. Uh, 75% of our staff among our organization are female. And so, you know, there's systemic differences in how women are, you know, and girls are treated as we grow up. And I experienced it too, like, just be nice, just be quiet, don't, don't raise your hand. And how, you know, we tend to maybe miss out on opportunities because we're not willing to, you know, promote ourselves in the way, in the rooms that we need to promote ourselves in or ask for the help that we need to. And so how we can continue to kind of shift that dynamic and make people feel supported and not have that imposter syndrome. I don't think imposter syndrome is completely only female, um, but I think it's primarily female right. <laughs> and it's rampant. You know, I mean, I find myself in coaching conversations a lot with, you know, as I mentioned, we have mostly a lot of female staff, but where they're projecting what perceptions are of them and how they're not meeting those those perceptions and, and those expectations. And I have to really bring it down to 
those are not those are not real. What is real? What's coming from you and what's coming from external and and how do we how do you feel good about the work you're doing and not that you're never going to measure up. You're never going to do enough to to be good. The fact that I'm now the first woman and that statistic, you know, we've been a female organization, you know, for for probably most of our history, at least, you know, more recent history. Um, the response has been very positive and hopeful. I think about what, you know, what that says. And the other thing that I think has been given a lot of hope is the fact that I was an internal candidate. And so a lot of our recent leadership transitions, a majority of them have been internal promotions and internal changes. I think it speaks volumes to what our goal is to develop leaders within our organization um, as best we can. And so not just the fact that I'm a woman, but the fact that one, I'm from Nebraska um, and that I came from within the organization, I think is what um, I've seen a lot of positive response to, which has been great. I don't think I can let you get away with too much humility. You self-identified as quite competitive, and yet at the same time we were chatting off air and you shared that you're not necessarily going to be the first person to be self-promotional. And you use that word shocked, shocked to get the role. And, uh, you know, I don't know you that well to be able to comment on your strengths and abilities and competencies, but it it seems that you know, you're, you are a great leader and, and should have this role as CEO. So all that being said, what have you learned about yourself in being appointed to this role and having occupied it for the, you know, for the last, well, if we include the interim part, you know, for a little over a year now? Yeah. Uh, shocked is, a, is an interesting word that I continue to use, but I don't know why it still comes up. I, I think I've feel that way because I built in my head what I perceived as the um, distinction of a CEO as being very charismatic, very outgoing, extroverted, going to work the room like nobody's business. That that was what was, you know, formed in my head as the perception of a great leader, a great CEO. Um that's not me necessarily. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm, you know, naturally introverted, uh, but I love to make connections with people. I love to connect a little bit deeper with fewer people. Um, so I think that perception that I had built up in my head about what I felt people wanted in a CEO and, and what I identified myself as or didn't identify myself as was was very different. And so what I've really learned being in this role is that really was all built in my head of what people felt was a good was a good leader and that um, the strengths that I'm able to bring, um, I may not be the first to speak in a meeting, but when I do, it's going to be thoughtful and, you know, I'm only going to say what what I feel is important. And I'm going to ensure that maybe some other members of the team have the limelight as well, because I think it's important that we have an organization that has leaders that are able to be out in the community and be in groups and be able to make connections and not just all on the CEO's shoulders. You know, it's a big part of what I do is make connections in the community. But 
we need to ensure that other other leaders have that opportunity and have the the capability of doing that as well. So I think it was just really that distinction of what I felt people wanted and truly what at the end of a day, end of the day, a good, a good leader really is. I love that you're breaking that mold of what you perhaps perceived a leader to be, but uh, breaking that down and reinterpreting that for yourself and for others. Is there or are there leadership lessons that you have learned for yourself over this last period of some years and, and perhaps you'd like to share? You know, I think my biggest lesson or takeaway is to set reasonable expectations on myself is, you know, I think jumping into this, I had an idea of everything I wanted to accomplish in, in such a short amount of time and feeling like there was almost a a clock ticking of I only had this position for so long and maybe because I was in interim and didn't know that that I would continue in the position, that's kind of how it started. Um, but I recognized that I was probably setting unrealistic expectations and having that support network around you. So I surround myself with leaders who can give me that dose of reality and give me that sense of um, better understanding of what's expected of me and, you know, what they hope I will achieve and what I can hope them achieve. Uh, that's that's made a huge difference. I I just can't speak highly enough about about the leaders that are, that are in our organization and and our volunteer board of directors who support me along the way. There are so many helpful people. So you can't do it all yourself. That's that's the biggest takeaway. Is there is too much work to be done yourself, and don't take that all on your shoulders. Really ask for help get the support you need, rely on the people that you surround yourself with. They're, they're there for a reason, and most likely they're going to bring, bring a better perspective than, than you may even have. I want to close with a question, but I, I want to preface it with a statement, which is I find it quite inspiring to hear you talk about and share the vulnerability, uh, with vulnerability, the experiences that you've encountered in your life, um, the courage it has taken to um, face those and to take certain leaps with your career um, and otherwise. I really appreciate how you have redefined for yourself and others what leadership actually means and that eight is Wall Street, Gordon Gecko style, that all too prevalent perception of what a leader is, you have redefined that. And moreover, offered a sense that leadership must have a servant role and also a degree of gratitude for the other people that you need to surround yourself with to, to achieve a bigger goal. So I just want to say that I really admire that and find that um, inspiring. You mentioned earlier that a part of your role, how you see your role and what you want to achieve is to help people uh, find and fulfill their purpose. And so I just want to ask, do you feel now and in what ways do you feel this, that you are living your purpose? I do. I, I honestly do feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be and serving what I'm supposed to serve at this point. Um, I think I, 
I knew I had it in me to make a bigger impact and to influence others in a different way. And now being in a role that I'm able to do that is, I don't take lightly at all. I think there's a huge amount of responsibility that I place on myself to ensure that I am supporting those around me and that I'm encouraging them. And being the leader that, you know, I want them to have. I, I want them to have very high expectations of me and my leadership team, and I want to uphold those um, as best I can. And so I really, I do feel like I've found my purpose. I found my purpose within an organization that I am absolutely in love with and feel like we make such a huge impact. And I found my purpose in a community that I care deeply about and that my family, you know, lives in and I want to make a better place um, for as long as we'll be here, which is in my mind forever. I have no intentions of going anywhere. And so I want to make this community um, the best that I can. And so that ultimately is my purpose. And you feel as if, I, I love how you're so outwardly focused. And do you feel as if that is making you the best person you can be? I do. Um, I feel more, I feel the ability to be more authentic than I've ever been in the past. And that seems like maybe that wouldn't be the case. Like if I were in this role that I would, you know, feel like I needed to portray myself in a different way. Um, but I, I really do feel like I can be authentic and vulnerable and be in a room to help solve problems, but not have to put on a, a persona of what I feel like I need to be. I can just be me. And um, that's, it's really refreshing. And it, and it feels really good to be able to, to do that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. My guest today has been Rebecca Dededing, President and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Omaha. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Stuart. Pickleball. I think I would very much enjoy it, and I get pretty competitive, so I might be something that, that you see me do in the next year or two if I get some more time. I feel like I am really missing the boat here. Yep, <laughs> definitely. Lives is hosted by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>